up from the depths, 30 stories high, breathing fire, his head up in the sky, Godzilla, 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 Godzilla. Oh, God, I hate Godzilla so much. No, it's Daddy Food. I, I, don't, I don't believe in intro, intros. Uh, I'm Godzilla and you're... Amuto. Amuto. <laughs> Welcome to episode 27 of the world-famous Petswoldsvoldy podcasts. In this episode... Well, Godzilla. Godzilla. Godzilla, Godzilla and Godzilla. Yes. Uh, but some other stuff as well. So you've seen the agenda. Yeah, F you. Right, we should f- f- we should point out for new listeners, of which there are many, FU stands for follow up. We're not swearing at one another, mostly. <laughs> what? No. Oh. <laughs> taking all the fun out of it, Darren. <laughs> should we do? Should we do FU first? Well, yeah, because that's how you put it in your little agenda here. Yeah, my drink's running low. I need more drink for patented Mike Easy drinking Tetsu drinking game. Um, oh, you're going to need a lot of drink for Keep- that drink. This what? episode, you're going to need a lot of that. This episode, maybe. Uh, oh dear. Oh no. I know he's going. Okay, I'm looking at the clock. Two minute rules in effect. So follow up. Anything you need to say? In follow up, or is it just stuff I need to say? Um. No, I think you're the only one that makes mistakes. So yes. <laughs> okay. I mentioned I mentioned a possible spin-off series from the Batman movies called Gotham, and I said, I wasn't sure if it was a dream or not. I had this memory of something called Gotham. Cameron McCormick, expert on these things. Thank you very much. He says it's real. It's actually happening. But it's uh, it's not set. See, I thought if Gotham would be set in the world of Batman, as in the time of the Dark Knight movie. But it's not. Gotham is going to be set when Bruce Wayne is just 13 years old. So how the hell that's going to happen? I've no idea. Mm. <laughs> Muppets. You mean it's a prequel? <laughs> it's oh. a prequel series. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and it doesn't have Batman in it. <laughs> <laughs> unless unless there's meant to be some proto-Batman that, of course, we haven't heard of until now. He had the real inspiration for Batman. It wasn't that he saw a bat and thought, huh, criminals are a cowardly lot. I shall use the symbol for bat. Uh, anyway, moving on. Muppets. So I was testing people to see whether what, how, what their knowledge on Muppets was like. And obviously, and I'd made loads of deliberate mistakes. Deliberate mistakes. For example, just as a just as a just to trick our listeners, I said that Frank Oz didn't do the voice of Miss Piggy. That was, of course, a huge joke. Of course, he did. Everyone knows that. It's well known. Um, but also, um, <laughs> stupid listeners, stupid listeners. Uh, Richard Hunt also did uh, Miss Piggy's voice in season one of the Muppets, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so thank you to Patrick Murphy, Grant Harding, Mike Kesey, and Muppet expert Dr. Thomas Holtz. <laughs> <laughs> for, their, for their substantial Muppet-themed data they provided. So I said, the general thrust of what I said was that, um, that the Sesame Street, Sesame Street came first, Muppet Show came later. Muppet yeah. Show was like a spin-off of Sesame Street. Yeah. But, but I, as a kid, always thought it was the other way around. Okay, that's partly true. Sesame Street debuted in 1969, 
and the Muppet Show, 1976. So what I said was true was that, you know, I grew up being aware of the Muppet Show and then discovered Sesame Street later, but it was the other way around. Um, but the Muppets themselves uh, substantially predate not only the Muppet Show, but also Sesame Street. And I'm going to quote Thomas R. Holtz Jr., Muppet expert. <laughs> As, um, well, Tom is obviously well-known, world-famous dinosaur expert. Um, Tom Holtz says... Now Muppet expert. Muppet expert. The, the Muppets actually even predate Sesame Street. Jim Henson, formerly University of Maryland student, we have a statue of him and Kermit in front of our student union centre. Wow. Started doing commercials, student films and local TV shows in the 1950s. In the 1960s, the Muppets were featured in many different variety shows, commercials, etc. By the end of the 1960s, the public broadcasting system, ah, PBS, that's what it stands for, teamed up with Henson to create Sesame Street, essentially all little kid education shows. Before that had farms as settings. They wanted something with an urban setting to reach a more modern audience. In the early 1970s, the Henson team did a number of primetime specials. Some were retellings of fairy tales, some were original stories, some were sketch comedies. These included many of the characters that would show up in The Muppet Show in the mid-1970s. So thank you very much, Tom. Appreciate that. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Um, so many Muppet errors. Muppets. <laughs> that's why you come to Tetsu, Tetsu Podcast. <laughs> yeah. Home of all your Muppet facts. Um, in the discussion last episode of Gabby, the Great American Biotic Interchange, and that new Dromomera scene from the Amazon, I said that there were sloths and some other animals whose appearance in either North or South America seemed to predate the appearance of the land bridge. There's another group of very important um, mammals that I didn't mention. Um, I think it was, was, ooh, was it Grant Harding who brought this to my attention? I forgot now, sorry. But um, I forgot to mention the important sigmodontine murids or cricketids, whatever form of taxonomy you want to follow for muroid rodents, but sigmodontines, this major, important, mostly neotropical group of muroid uh, um, rodents, they, they also don't, don't like, they sort of appear out of time. Uh, so yeah, just mention those. Don't want to start talking about them beer all day. Mm. <laughs> Any other follow-up? Um, <laughs> no. No, I don't think so. I can't even remember the last episode. What did we talk about? Muppets. Muppets. <laughs> Yeah, I no, remember I can't remember. I can't remember what what was said or what people said about it. Right. Um. So let's work. Work. Move on to news from the world of news. News from the world of news. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of news. I'll, I'll keep this brief because yeah, I could talk about this. This mm. go on for just, oh, just just dally and waste time. Talk about stuff. Uh, firstly, uh, there's a new large living species of South American mammal has just been published in the Journal of Mammalogy. It's a new tape. Wow, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> in other mammal news, I have a long-standing interest in the alleged um, mystery alien cats of the British countryside. And the mystery big cat world is all abuzz at the moment with a, a very strange photograph which shows... Well, it's, it was taken in Buell Reservoir, Sussex, here in southern England. And it shows a lake with some water birds on the lake at sunset. Very beautiful photograph. I haven't written down the name of the photographer or anything useful like that. But um, the photograph seems to show a large cat wading, not swimming, but kind of wading across the lake. And um, this, this 
it's really weird. It's because uh, the the cat's t it's totally in silhouette, and it you won't find it online by the way because they haven't yet released it. Um, mm -hmm. I've got it because I've been sent it by uh, Nick Arnold, who uh, investigates is you know really into the British big cat phenomenon. Uh, has a Facebook group called I think Big Cats in Kent. I think. Um, Do you want to hold up the picture to the camera for all our podcast listeners? I'll draw it. <laughs> oh, that's even better. It looks like that. See that? Yep. Looks right. a bit like Messi. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, and it's one of those pictures where it doesn't look enough like a big cat for you to go, oh my God, that's definitely a big cat. Mm. It's like, could it be something else? Could it be like a bunch of birds in a funny position and you're seeing, you know, pareidolia is causing you to think you're seeing a cat head with ears. Mm. Um, but it just does. But on the other hand, it seems to have a long tail and it's also clearly quite large compared to the birds that are seen in the shot. So I don't know. But something we're talking about at the moment. Also in the world of mystery animals-ish, have you heard this cool story about now, it's all over the internet, and it's being generally, the, the title that goes with all the articles is What Was Giant Killer Monster That Ate the Nine-Foot Shark? That's the kind of title they're going with. You heard about mm -hmm. this? So, for those of you who haven't, um, a great white shark was tagged with a, uh, a satellite receiver, presumably on its dorsal fin, and um, the, uh, the tag was discovered some months later um the the animal that was tagged was like three meters long it's a reasonable size but not giant great white shark and the tag obviously charts the you know the telemetry data whatever happens to the animal like depth recording temperature recording that sort of stuff um and the uh, the tag shows that <clears throat> the, the tag experienced a, a, a temperature rise from seven degrees c to 25 degrees c which they have interpreted as it having been ingested by an animal, and it descended, the tag descended to 580 meters down. So the inference is that it was swallowed by a thing, and that thing then dived, or dove, whatever. <laughs> Doved, Darren, dove. Doved, doved. Um, <laughs> This isn't actually funny enough, so it's just broken as, a, as a, a, like a, a happening news story, but it actually happened 11 years ago. <laughs> I don't know why they've <laughs> held up until now. Um, there's a, this, it's so big right now, this story, that the Smithsonian Channel, so I know American TV channel, which I've never heard of before, um, is broadcasting a, a, a TV documentary called Hunt for Future... Hunt for, what? I've written down Hunt for Future Predator, but that can't be right. <laughs> I think I've got something else on the brain there. <laughs> Hunt for, I don't know, something predator. <laughs> June 26th on Smithsonian. Past predator. Yeah, oh, I don't know. Um, but what I'm thinking yeah. is, so, so all these articles talk about the idea that what monster could have eaten a three-meter-long great white shark? Yeah, I'm seeing a little hole in this, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the little hole is the data comes from the tag, <laughs> not yeah. from a whole shark. And yeah. the tag, the tag is, I think, about less. It's less than four centimeters long. Yeah. So if a tag has apparently been swallowed by an animal, and has apparently, you know, gone on a crazy adventure and been taken down to depth, do you know that a whole shark was swallowed, <laughs> or could it just be the tag was swallowed? Because <laughs> tags detach on animals all the time. Yeah. And there are also animals that take chunks out of fins of sharks and other animals. So yeah. my 
hypothesis is that something swallowed it wasn't the something necessarily swallowed or or ate or bit the whole shark it was that something swallowed the tag and therefore all this amusing speculation <laughs> about an unknown uber predator that's capable of biting great white sharks enough possibly yeah. maybe a little premature mm. yeah just a little bit <laughs> i'm guessing your your thoughts are somewhere along those lines as well oh yeah that's... <laughs> but it's quite funny because all the articles I read, nobody nobody says that. They say this data comes from the tag, and nobody says at any point. Of course, it could just be that the tag wasn't attached to the shark when it was swallowed. They none of them say that. They yeah. all say, they well, all say I think what could have eaten a three meter long shark? It's sort of a bigger shark. As soon as you think of that, yeah, soon, but as soon as you think of that, you realise, oh, there's practically no story here, which is why it's taken eleven years to come out, probably. <laughs> Just took the right sort of idiot to find this. <laughs> well, any any publicity for sharks is good, and and maybe that was part of the motivation to keep sharks in the news because obviously shark conservation and stuff being what it is, um, the the plight of sharks rather being what it is. I don't know, but or maybe yeah. it's just making money for some documentary. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I can imagine this was. We we actually missed. Uh, I, I jumped to the wrong thing there. That was news from the world of news. Oh. We forgot to do news from the world of Darren and John. Oh well, we'll do that next. Yeah, I haven't finished yet. Because oh, you just, haven't finished yet. Well, couple, just couple so of, much news, so much news. Well, just okay. Stay on still on the subject of. Sorry, yes, um, there is more. Yes. Okay, so so more, more moderny stuff. There's this this paper by Carrier and Morgan published in Biological Reviews a couple of days ago at the time of writing. I've written, I've called it the face punch paper, but it's properly titled <laughs> Protective Buttressing of the Hominin Face. David Carrier, <laughs> David Carrier, well-known uh, like biological you know, theory guy. We mentioned him when we were talking about gates and tail length of animals because I spoke about Carrier's constraint. David Carrier and Michael Morgan. Yeah, that's right. This Morgan is not Elaine Morgan of the Aquatic Ape. Hypothesis, especially seeing as she's uh, dead. But um, uh, Carrier and Morgan, protective buttressing of the hominin face. This paper's open access, and it's really interesting because they propose in this paper that the the like the deep cheekbones and the shortened faces and shortened jaws of Australopithecines and Homo hominins, they argue that those are maybe like uh, it's. Um, I was going to say sexually selected because they do have a role in sexual selection, but they're basically saying that they have, they are, um, uh, they've evolved under the pressure of male combat. Mm. So it's like male combat. It's like male hominins punching punching each other in the face yeah. have like has shaped the the, the shape. They've sort of flattened shape. the faces out, huh? <laughs> no, in See, the I Lamarck thought we'd given up on Lamarckian evolution, but there you go. <laughs> they're seriously saying it's that, that 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 selective pressure has led to shortening of the face and and buttressing of the eyes and stuff uh, because males have fought by <laughs> punching each other punching in the face. Each other in the face. Hmm. Yeah. Now I thought, well, that's quite an interesting idea, but there's a few problems with it, and and one being that since when is like imagine this kind of fighting, like actual punching, it's like. Is that really kind of like a generic human? Is that kind of a, a Homo sapiens thing? And is it 
a homo thing and is it an australopithecine thing and i you know immediately thought really it, i don't think it is because you think of the kind the way that people fight people of all types and cultures and there's lots of like wrestling and kicking and since yeah. when do people actually like literally brawl and punch with closed fists uh, uh, people can do that and yeah uh, no i agree it's sort of like it's almost a stylized type of fighting isn't it when you're closed like, yeah. fist and standing fairly like, clear and whacking each other in the face but yeah, real I fighting think, tends to be much more scuffly and messy it's a culture it's a cultural thing i yeah. think that we have this idea of fighting because we we know that some people have learned to fight like this for um you know like for, for like sort of sport and and entertainment it's not how people, it's not how people want to fight because you look at all the other diversities all the other kinds of fighting and why are there all these rules in fighting like you're not allowed to bite or pull people's hair or kick them between the legs so people actually want to do those things in a real fight but it's like yes. we've put in these rules to stop it and then you look at other hominins apart from homo sapiens it's like since when are australopithecines going to be forming like a tightly curled fist and punching each other in the face? So those are my initial thoughts. And there's a very good article um, by our friend Brian Sweetek at his Laylaps uh, blog. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but check it out if you're interested in this. And he, I think he does a really good job of, of basically critiquing this. And he says exactly the same stuff. In particular, the whole idea that hominins... And especially if you go back to like Australopithecines or the Pliocene and Pleistocene, they weren't like forming curled fists. And since when is forming a, a fist and punching other people in the face a good way, a good way to fight? So um, yeah, so there are issues with this with this otherwise very interesting paper. And yes. Well, I haven't read the paper, but also from the other side, I do find that sort of odd. So you flatten the face to make it more punchable. <laughs> is that the idea? And what's the nose about then? We you know, suggest that many of the all very odd to me. We suggest many of the facial features that characterize early hominins evolved to protect the face from injury during fighting with fists. Specifically, the trend towards a more orthognathic face, the bunodont form and expansion of the post-canine teeth, the increased robustity of the orbit, the increased robustity of the masticatory system, including the mandibular corpus and condyles, zygoma and anterior pillars of the maxilla, and the enlarged jaw adductor musculature are traits that may represent protective buttressing of the face. So they're saying the face became shorter and deeper and the bones stouter and stuff through evolution due to this continual pressure from yeah to like but that's just stating the conclusion because we don't know that that sort of face is actually better at taking a punch yeah oh yeah is there any um experimental yeah. data to say that is the case i'm pretty sure there is nothing of that kind and, and i do believe i'd have to read it again but i'm pretty sure brian flags that up and talks about it at length as well so so yeah, I've been following. I've been following the the uh, the hoo ha over that, and I, th I think Brian did a really good job, and I'm def definitely agree with him there. Um, mm. and I, I think I said, I think it was on Twitter that um, I was a bit like unhappy with the fact that this paper appeared in Biological Reviews. Biological Reviews is published by the Cambridge Philosophical Society. It's a really good journal to get into, and it's now published within recent years. This would be the second paper that I'm aware of that's. It's like a paper that immediately is seen as being significantly flawed. And it's like, it's an interesting paper. 
And I kind of think a hypothesis like this is worthy of being out there somewhere, but I don't think it's good enough to go somewhere like biological reviews. There's plenty of other little journals that could carry this kind of hypothesis. Mm. Um, and <clears throat> I'm particularly peeved about it because I, th this is specifically what I was discussing on Twitter. Myself and colleagues, I don't want to talk about the particular paper in question, but myself and colleagues submitted a big review to biological reviews a while back that was pretty sound and not controversial. And, and it was rejected because we had one reviewer who like really, really hated it, had a real strong opinion on this subject, and theirs was com their review was completely contrary to ours, uh, to do with like uh, major philosophical differences. It's the sexual selection stuff. It's mm -hmm. that stuff again, yeah. And, uh, and we just could not get into this journal. And, but then you see other papers like this that sail through because they're not something that anybody really cares about. They don't have a real strong opinion on it. And they think, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, what the hell, let it go. Let's, let's see it, put it out there, and it deserves to be published. I would have thought just... that sexual selection amongst hominids was actually a fairly um, controversial area, though. I would have thought there were people that um, had strong opinions on it. Wouldn't you? Um, you're right. Um, and there's, there's like a big debate about the importance of sexual selection in shaping the anatomy of primates in general, something that people feel quite strongly about. Yeah, uh, yeah but that, that, doesn't, that does not seem to have affected the, uh, well, the fate of this manuscript. I'm just going to look at the acknowledgments just out of interest. Anonymous reviewers. Mm, yeah. Well, there you go. Oh, there you go. There you go, there's that. Um, finally, dinosaurs. Okay, everybody's talking about Dinochirus. Oh, mm -hmm. Dinochirus, so boring. Such a familiar <laughs> dinosaur. <laughs> Did, have I spoken about Dinochirus before? Must I have think done. we have talked about Dinochirus ah. before, so I'm not sure. I think we might have done it last episode. Okay, I'll stop there then. Yeah. <laughs> no one cares. Pictures. No one cares, Darren. No one cares about Dinochirus. I, I, a lot of these new pictures, like, I can... Un Hey, you and I were having an argument on Twitter, weren't we? Yeah. I can understand people being desperate to reconstruct an animal that all of a sudden is known from lots of material, but just just hold on, people. Nothing's been published yet. You're going from like rumors and like crappy little photographs, and people are obviously getting a lot of stuff wrong. They're um, reconstructing Dinochirus in a particular way, and it's like when the uh, when the actual stuff does get published, well, you'll see it's somewhat different from yes. What, what you've been doing so um and as discussed on tetrapod zoology the first paper on the orgiac alleged ornithomimosaur has now been published so this is a, a paper of great personal relevance a paper saying that a bunch of theropod dinosaur remains from the wielden rocks low from the lower cretaceous of uh, southern england this says that they are the same essentially the same animal as um this alleged new ornithomimosaur from orgiac in southwestern France. Um, but, well, my thoughts are on tetrapod zoology for anyone interested. Uh, potentially very interesting because it would seem to show that several of the Wielden theropods, famously known from like, you know, bits and pieces, it would seem to show that a lot of them, or several of them, maybe belong to one new animal. But um, it's a big, it's a big mess. Very well, I, I approve of this because that means there are fewer dinosaurs, right? <laughs> we, can, uh, we can now synonymize. That's exactly. That's it's really, yeah. It's hard to know from the paper if that's what they're saying or not because they <laughs> say. And bear in mind, I reviewed different versions of this paper, and I kept on pushing for them to act on this. It's like, what precisely are you saying? Are you saying these are all the same species? Are you saying that they are different species within the same 
genus. I, I hate I hate genera, but you know the concept of a little clade that we call a genus. Are you yeah. saying that they are close relatives within some little clade, or what? What exactly are you saying? And they would never explain this, and they never did in the final paper. So. According to their argument, yes, it could mean that they're all the same thing, mm. but they don't explain it. So it also could not mean that. It could mean that they're saying that they still need their names or or, or what, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I you suppose want... if it's that unclear, then, you know, you probably need more evidence, right? Well, plus their case isn't tight anyway, because yeah. they, they say, for example, oh, this, this English one is identical to the new French one. It's an actual fact. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not identical at all. Like a little bit similar, but they're not not more similar to each other than they are to like other you know, other theropods that they've been compared with. Right, right. News from the world of Darren and John, which was meant to come at the beginning of the show. Well, just after what, a few. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. Um, uh, I've got something new. Well, hey. Yeah. So, last night, about four in the morning, my cat was, like, meowing at the bedroom door. And I just meow, 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 and I had to get up and look at her. I opened the door and I looked at her, and she's looking at me. And I think, God, I went to check, because in case there's something wrong with her, you know, broken leg or eye put out or something, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she looks fine, so I think, Maybe maybe she just hasn't been fed today. So I go in and I, I take her to the kitchen and I pour out her like a little dried food, and she just looks at me like you stupid monkey. <laughs> That's not what I wanted. So I just looked at her and I thought, well, f you then. Follow up you. I'm going back to bed. So I did. And then I woke up this morning, and I think I found out what she was meowing about. Um, I think she was saying there's another cat in the house and it's pissing everywhere. <laughs> so <laughs> the <laughs> the house it doesn't smell very good at the moment. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, uh, yeah. That's 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 news from the world of John. Wow, that's thrilling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there evidence for this cat other than the stench of urine? No. But she doesn't do this, so no. Yeah. Well, that's um, there was there was a, a a kind of TV project that was on like last year called something like the Secret Life of Cats, and mm. do you, with hidden cameras and critter cams and stuff they basically showed what domestic cats get up to when they're out of sight of people or out of sight of their owners anyway uh, it was all done in a one little english village and of the i can't remember but it was, it was like 20 cats or something and of those about <laughs> i want to say a number but i know i'm wrong it was it was a notable percentage of these cats spent a significant portion of their time in other people's houses. <laughs> so what a lot of cats do is they bugger off. People people think they've they're out in the woods or something. No, they're not. They've just gone to like old Granny Doris up the road because yeah. she feeds it and yeah. they stay there for the day. Yeah. 
and this seems and this is like in this study okay there's one little village so you can't say it's representative of domestic cats as a whole but you got the impression that that this is like a regular thing this is like a, a regular thing that cats do they spend a lot of time in other people's houses either secretly because they sneak in through cat flaps and windows or knowingly because people are like, oh it's little little furry chumley you come in this is our buddy cat he visits us every day <laughs> we give yeah. him three meals and then he goes back to his owners well i think this is pretty uh, like we've had other cats in here all the time i've seen them in here you know like, oh yeah. really yeah um we got us one of those special cat flaps that like works on um her uh chip yeah. her microchip yeah. but it broke and also last night we had the door open anyway because it was hot yeah so yeah pretty likely another cat would just walk in yes well yeah they would yeah especially yeah. if there's another cat in there it gives them an incentive to follow in and especially if they're like bold or whatever steal their food steal their food yeah socialize with them well that's a good piss story piss, piss everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh one of my mum's cats would sometimes go missing in the middle of winter and this is a she's got a very like real skinny rangy gracile tabby cat what's he called oscar and um and he would turn up like towards the end of the day but he was warm it was like his paws weren't cold or you know and it wasn't it wasn't just his own body he, he'd definitely been in a warm place and she's thinking he's been in someone else's house and i'm sure he had been that's what he'd spent the day in someone else's house so so there you go that's news from the world of john yeah. <laughs> um we've been uh, my crocodilomorph T-shirt, which has ad been advertised on on Tetsu, um, has, uh, has has been selling. I'm only selling two T-shirts through the Tetsu Red Bubble Shop at the moment, but they're both doing fairly well. Um, one of them says "Monitors are the best animals," and it's got a montage of like monitor lizards. And uh, thank you to everyone who's bought it because you know people have sent me pictures of themselves wearing it and everything. And the other one is called it's 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 my crocodilomorph montage. So a selection of like living and ex and extinct uh, crocodilomorphs. That's yeah, it's the one we use on the background of the website, isn't it? The tattoo. Of course we do. Yes. Except obviously this is like portrait instead of yeah yeah. It says crocodilomorphs. They're better than dinosaurs and mammals together and could beat them in a fight. <laughs> and and I initially uploaded it at the wrong size. So I know at least one person has bought <laughs> a version with like a little tiny, <laughs> tiny reproduction of the image. But then I corrected that and it's a full size. So uh, and again, thank you to people who bought it. And uh, yeah, uh, we, we, we want to see people wearing these T-shirts at TetZooCon. Yeah. So what's, you know, the, um, what's, the, what's the address of your shop there? What are you, TetZoo? I am Tetsu, and it's redbubble.com slash people slash Tetsu. Tetsu, yeah. And, of course, we also have a Tetsu podcast Redbubble shop where you can buy a Tetsu <laughs> podcast T-shirt. Yes, and that what is... What are Because uh, of our split up uh, thousands of shops everywhere on the internet. You cannot, you cannot turn a corner on the internet without running into one of our giant media empire properties exactly. that's yeah. tetra that's that's redbubble.com slash people slash tetra podcasts yeah 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 so, it's gonna, so when we when we're at tetzucon and we look out from the stage at the thousands of people assembled in the audience it's going to be wall-to-wall tetzu and tetzu <laughs> podcast t-shirts isn't it of all colors and sizes so on that note uh tetzucon is still happening yep uh 
July the Saturday, July the twelfth. Twelfth, yep. So London, one month like, from now. One month yeah. from now. Yeah. Um, so everything's still in place and going well. We've got we've now got a schedule on the on the uh, podcast website. Yep. And we also got abstracts from everyone, which is good. So uh, yeah, so tedzoocom slash convention. Yeah, where you go to find all that, and also to book your tickets. We need people to book tickets. Yeah. Um. Yes. Otherwise, you'll miss out. You won't go. You won't you go. Yeah. You'll only have yourself to blame. Don't come mm-hmm. crying to us. <laughs> um. Should I mention LonCon? I don't know. That's kind of. So there's this giant world science fiction convention called, well, this one's called LonCon Three, and um, I can't I can't give any details on the dates and it's it's like uh, second or third week of August in August the fourteenth the eighteenth or something like that somewhere mm. in London, I don't know where. Anyway, uh, near Canary Wharf, I believe. But yeah, right. Um, yeah, there's a there's a special like speculative biology uh, section of. Of talks, like four or five talks on speculative biology, and it's not confirmed at the time of speaking. Today is the twelfth of June, but um, uh, I might I might be giving a talk there. So long con. We call, and John and I have been talking about whether we are going to have like a Tetsu podcast stand or something. We're, we're, we're not sure yet. We'll see how it goes. But um, that'll be cool. F- talking at a science fiction convention. Mm. Have you seen the movie Paul? Yes. I watched it recently quite a few times. I really quite liked it. And there's a bit when they get there in San Francisco at some sci-fi convention. Yeah. It's going to be just like that. Just like that. Just like that. Wall-to-wall <laughs> Klingons and um, <laughs> other things from the world of sci-fi. <laughs> Seven of Nine and stuff like that. Um, I have a, an article about the Cryptozoologicon in the next issue of 40 and Times. So look out for that. And plugging along in the background is still the big the big vertebrate paleontology book. Chondrichthians, Chondrichthians. My God, Chondrichthians. Oh, fish. Oh, fish, look. Stop stinking up the podcast with your stupid Chimeras, fish. stem chimeras, stem <laughs> chimera, stem chimeras and stem sharks, stem chimeras. Oh, enough with the stems. Stem chimeras. <laughs> And that one, I haven't finished drawing it yet. It's pretty weird. They're yeah, all pretty, pretty weird. weird. That one's called oh. Squ- Squatting Actis. God. Yeah, so yeah, much left to do. Just... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, right, we should we should move on to the main thing, because we've been talking for oh, ages and we haven't done yeah. the main thing. Yeah, listen to you. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 55 minutes, Darren. We haven't even oh. tackled the main topic. <laughs> Oopsie. <laughs> Okay. What are we doing? Up from the depths, 30 stories high, breathing fire, his head up in the sky. Godzilla, 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 Godzilla. And Godzuki. God, I hate Godzuki so much. <laughs> Where should we start? Yeah, I don't know. And I, I was thinking about this on our, in our little break. <laughs> How to tackle all this because so I thought we'd talk about three films primarily um the original Godzilla, the Honda version, um the nineteen ninety eight Godzilla oh, do we have to yes, for comparison 
sake. I'm not saying we go into a huge amount of detail and what happened and all that, but sort of comparison. And the new Godzilla, of course. Um, but I'm not sure whether we should just, like, tackle them in order or whether we should talk about them all in one big melange. We'll end up talking about them in one light way anyway, so maybe we should start talking about them a little bit in order. Um, so I recently watched the 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 original Honda oh. version of Godzilla. Now, I was under the impression that I had seen it before. And when I watched it, it became pretty obvious to me that I hadn't. I sort of imagined that I'd seen it as a kid or something. Um, I didn't really know very much about the history of it. Um, but it turns out I couldn't have seen it as a kid unless I went to fairly extraordinary lengths. I could have seen the funny sort of mashed up version with the Canadian actor chopped in. Yeah, that's the one I had seen. Yeah. But the actual original Honda film is quite different. I mean, it's got a different structure and mood to it. Um, and I was surprised by it. I, it was not the sort of film I thought it was. Um, so you managed to watch a bit of it. The beginning? More than a bit. More than a bit. <laughs> I, I watched beginning like... and the end. But you have seen it before, right? Mm. Mm. Have you seen the original Honda before? No. No, I hadn't. But you probably got enough of the new version to sorry the the original version the to original. see the sort of difference between them. oh yeah it's very different very different yeah. it's a totally different uh i had a lot of intelligent things to say about it and right now i've kind of forgotten them but yeah i i, I find it you know quite a sort of powerful film with like genuine emotional like stuff in it because okay so i didn't like it watching it i didn't I, i'm i'm just about mature enough to watch it and never once make a funny face or laugh at the special effects because that like doesn't come into it it's like you just you've got to accept it for what it is because obviously the the godzilla puppet is uh well is man in a suit or whatever it is yeah a bit ropey but whatever that's fine you can you know doing the best the best they could for the time but there's bits where for example when it's destroying tokyo when godzilla's destroying tokyo um i found that honestly quite you know powerful and for example the bit when you know there's the bit where the uh, there's a bunch of journalists at the top of a, a transmitting tower and they and they realize that the the creature's coming for them and the, the the one that you're listening to he actually like says this is it goodbye yeah i i don't want to seem soppy or anything but that was that's like that's powerful on a sort of like you know the, like the recordings from 9-11 that that it's like it's like almost on that kind of level it's like it's actually got a genuine gravitas and a sort of emotion to it yeah and there are um, other scenes like this like um when they're in one of the rescue shelters and they've got a little geiger counter and they're going over the people with the geiger counter to see whether they've been exposed to enough radiation to kill them and they've you know they're doing it to kids and they're turning away like nope that one's that one's going to die in, in like the next few days mm. and yeah, I was as I said. Yeah, as you were saying, it's sort of unexpectedly powerful sort of film, and I was thinking about. Um, actually, I'll just go back. I think actually the special effects were not as bad as I remembered them or thought they were. I actually thought that a lot of it was, hmm, wasn't 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 too bad. Obviously, it doesn't look real, but I thought, you know, not 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 as bad as I, as pop culture would have you believe it is going and watching it, I, I felt like the special effects were better than that. But 
Anyway, that's not really the point. Mm. The point was, I was thinking, yeah, what's the context this film is made in? And everyone says, I've always heard, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor for the atomic bomb. Now, I think, I think that's sort of misstating it a little bit. Um, obviously, it's got, it is in a way about the atomic bomb, but it's also about what happened to Japan during the war. And I realized, sort of looking at the timeline, so this was made in 1956, is it? 1954. Yeah, sorry, 54, exactly. Or released in 54 anyway, so maybe made a bit earlier. Yeah, but whatever. This is only eight years or so after the firebombing of Tokyo and the nuclear bombs. Mm. So they weren't making a film about, oh, Imagine this crazy thing happening. I mean, of course, the giant giant lizard is the crazy thing. But they were making a film about what really happened to Tokyo. The the um, firebombing of Tokyo was every bit as devastating as what you see Godzilla do. Um, and this is just eight years after it happened. So imagine yeah. we're making a film. London had been destroyed eight years ago. So what's that? Um, 2006. London had been nearly flattened and then right now we're making a film when london's flattened it sort of seems like a quite a different sort of film to make than the later ones where this sort of thing these sorts of scenes no most people hadn't seen them but then even young people would have remembered this stuff you know this stuff happening and i thought that was sort of interesting that this film is not really about it's not some sort of hokey metaphor for nuclear weapons and that sort of stuff it's it's actually much more of a real film about what actually happened and um i think the the japanese film industry at the time still had censorship in place and i haven't had time to look this up but it might be that they couldn't make films about what happened to about the bombing and about how bad it was because they were still under censorship rules so approaching it as a monster film might have been the only way they could do it. Um, so, yeah, yes. that was my thoughts on it. I thought it was really um, interesting from that perspective and not the sort of film that I thought it was. It does seem very bold and daring to, yeah, to, to, make, a, to make a film about the destruction of a city and... Uh, death on a pretty epic scale so soon after the event because um i'm trying to think i mean the the um in in modern times you you could say that there's there's a, a possible comparison there with the movies that have been made about 9-11 um i mean but everything's different now because you know things move so quickly i mean we we, we most of us saw all that stuff happen set within seconds of it happening in real life so um, there isn't the same pace in, ter- in terms of things, you know, hitting the screens. But um, I don't know. I wonder if you, if you, if there was some way of um, like standardizing or normalizing time, whether because I'm trying to think, there, there's a couple of movies made about 9/11 that are specifically about the adventures of the people that are on the planes. There's one called, uh, uh, there's one named after the, the 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 flight, one of the planes. Flight ninety one or something, uh, and there's there's a TV movie called Let's Roll, 
which is I think I think that's what it's called because that was like one of the last words of the the bunch of people on the the plane when they tried to overtake the terrorists. And it's like I can't remember. I should check this out, but I I think that those movies were made like within you know within a year of the event. I could be wrong. Maybe it's more than a year, but I wonder if the if the amount of time is equivalent to the amount of time that happened between the actual World War Two events overcoming Tokyo and uh, the Godzilla movie. Um, in which case, what I'm getting at is is are people's feelings and approach to what's the, what an appropriate amount of time is are they the same, or are they or, or are we more you know. Um, on the other hand, he could also say that, you know, what happened at 9-11 is not, <laughs> who's to say whether, which disasters are comparable or not, but, you know, it's, um, God, how many people died, how many people died in J Japan during the um, Second World War? Um, yes, I do know, I do know how many people were killed in the bombing in the, in, in the Second World War in Japan. Yes. Um, and it was, it's between 300,000 and a million people, and most people think it's around half a million um so i think the difference between that and 9-11 is that just about everyone in japan and certainly everyone in tokyo would have lost people pretty close to them right family members close friends everyone and that's just not the case for something like 9-11 i don't know anyone that was personally involved i mean maybe second hand maybe but you know, but this is sort of a, in Japan, this was a personal thing for everybody in Japan and watching it immediately afterwards or, you know, well, yeah, I'm just saying it is, it is a sort of a different thing. It's not, it's not so localized. It's, it's very much a, something that everyone would have had a, a fairly close emotional and personal connection to rather than um, something which, yeah, was, was, more localized not everyone knew knew someone yeah so i think it is a slightly different sort of it is a different thing yeah 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 um, um and but of course you know people were making films about um the war during the war and people were making films about the war immediately afterwards in most countries um except for countries that lost so um you know, it's easy. You get lots of films coming out about the war in England and America immediately after the war. But yeah, I think it's different because they were, as I say, they were partially they were partially censored. And yeah, yeah. So, and in some ways, I think that m mashing this original Godzilla in with the other Godzillas is is funny because I think they're quite different sorts of films. <laughs> funny if some culturally deeply inappropriate but 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 yeah you, the concept of Godzilla has obviously evolved I mean that's what we've just discussed is pretty depressing stuff well, one more thing before we move away from it though I mean I, I I think you've got a very good very good point there but the the concept of Godzilla as um h-bomb allegory does have shouldn't we shouldn't you know say that that isn't a valid hypothesis because you know that the the movie starts with a a boat at sea and they see a flash and the people the, the boat is destroyed yes and that's I, and it's it's never quite clear in the film that happens a couple of times in the movie where these these ships get destroyed 
and it's never entirely clear what happens because you just see a flash of light. Is it meant to be that Godzilla has risen up from the sea and zapped the, the ship with his atomic breath or something? I don't, I don't, but I, th- I think maybe yeah, that's sorry. what meant to happen. I didn't those, mean to say, yeah, I didn't mean to say that. On, Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> those are based on real um, events. The, the, there's a 1954 event where uh, an H bomb test, uh, the Bikini Atoll test um yeah. like uh, a ship was caught was was like nearby and the crew all um i don't know if they died but they got they certainly were uh, got radio um, radiation sickness yeah. um and i japanese yeah japanese fishing boat yeah yes so that and that that's i, I remember reading that that is like inspirational to the that scene in in godzilla yeah. and yeah, you could say that that what happens in the movie is like a replaying, a retelling of that exact event. So, so yes, that's pretty sorry, clear. I didn't mean to say that Godzilla isn't ever used as a metaphor mm. for atomic weapons in it. I mean, it's fairly obvious, and it's in the dialogue that Godzilla is a metaphor at some points. But to say that that's all Godzilla is a metaphor for in this film is is wrong, and it's Godzilla is a metaphor for. Um, the war in general as well. Um, and I've heard interesting arguments, and I think this sort of makes sense, that Godzilla is in some ways Japan bringing its own destruction upon itself. You see what I mean? Mm. So there's this sort of notion that if you go and... <laughs> if you're aggressive and meddle with things, it will come back on you. Mm. And... um. I think that that you know I think that's in there as, as I say there's no one metaphor going on there's there's many metaphors going on it's a complicated well, yeah. film yeah plus I think you know people are inclined to say these very intelligent philosophical things about movies and they might be partially true but on the other hand okay again I don't know enough about the Honda's original movie to to say anything particularly intelligent here so bear with me but you know movies are made for money uh, as, as sources of entertainment as well. So um, that's like one of the things you have to stack up. You, you can't you can't look at a movie like Godzilla and say, ah, oh, it was specifically done as a as a uh, uh, a comment on you know, nuclear oh, bombs. But I think you can with Godzilla because they say it. The, the dialogues are often quite explicit. I think that <laughs> I think you can say that sort of thing about this film. I think it's it's one of the clearest. In some time, some ways, it's a bit ham-fisted in its beating you over the head with its metaphors. You know, I think that it's quite. Mm, I disagree. I think it's yeah. I think it's very explicit in what it's saying a lot of the time. Right. Okay. But would you say that Honda specifically made the movie to make that point, or was it that he wanted to make a movie about a monster? Uh, that's what. That's what I'm saying. I think that the idea was to make a film about I think these points came first in a way I think it was probably in some ways I I expect it was all simultaneous right oh if we make a monster film we can make all this all this stuff that we want to make films about and stick it all in there and we'll be allowed to do it I think that would probably come in a flash it's a sort of that's the central sort of inspiration you get for these sorts of things, isn't it? You combining two ideas. You don't think I want to make a monster film. Hmm, what shall I stuff in it? 
Yeah. I, I don't know about that. I think that it's more likely that he thought, oh, a monster film would allow us to um, explore all this stuff, which we couldn't otherwise do. Yes, yes. But I, I would I would reiterate, having watched it, like I say, over the last, not not the whole film, but, but much of it over the last couple of days, it's like it did strike me as profoundly, you know, really, really powerful, really emotional. And, um, yeah, just, just like... Kind of like a real, I don't know, masterpiece of cinema, really. I mean, I liked the characters. I liked the way they spoke. And, um, yeah, the the sort of like the gravitas of it. I mean, the stuff the stuff at the end where, uh, I don't know the name of the guy. The, the, the guy who, who delivers the oxygen, uh, what's it called? Oxygen? Destroyer. Destroyer, the oxygen destroyer. Yeah. And, and he like basically sacrifices himself at the end. That's like, that's that was... That wasn't that wasn't like you know a lot of the, the subsequent Godzilla movies. Um, you're you're like you know laughing and you know eating popcorn at the same time. Yeah. But I wouldn't be laughing in front of that movie. It's like oh god, <laughs> this is yeah. Like- yeah. I sort of sat down in front of my computer to sort of oh yeah watch a bit of Godzilla. Ha ha ha. Oh oh wow okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh and then his family died. Oh and then everybody yeah. died. Oh, and then yeah. he died. And, and then she oh, yeah. cried and yeah. So yeah, yeah, I thought it was um, yeah, very interesting film. So mm. going on from that to like, yeah, so that's the benchmark. <laughs> that's the benchmark, and then of course there are a whole bunch of Godzilla films which I haven't seen. I might have seen them as a kid, but you know, um, Godzilla two and three, and Godzilla versus this and that, and yeah. I haven't seen any of those. So all. Yeah, destroy all monsters and attack of the smog yeah. monster and Godzilla versus Biolante and attack of space Godzilla and yeah, <laughs> space yeah. Godzilla. Do you want to talk about any of those? Well, not really. No, no, no I don't because no. Yeah, I don't think um, it really follows the arc um, very well. Um, it was yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like I like them. I like them a lot, but they are genuinely just generally sorry, generally yeah, sort of silly monster filled romps. They they don't they're like a whole different universe from the first movie. Yes, and in the romp genre is exactly where the nineteen ninety eight film sits. Yeah. Um, now I rewatched it just a few days ago, and I've got to say, oh, here it comes. It was he's going nowhere... to say something positive about it. Yeah. It was nowhere Oops. near as bad as everyone's saying. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a serious film. I thought it was kind of funny. It was like, yeah, joint lizard running around. John Renault. There's, there's Ferris Bueller. You know, yeah, Ferris Bueller kind of, and John Renault. Yeah, that's funny. More cream. <laughs> he called his coffee. <laughs> Elvis. He was a king. It's just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awful. No, but it lots... was ah. Here's the thing. It knew it was awful. It knew it was that. It knew it was. It didn't. Um, <laughs> it, no, of course it did. Watch it again. Of course it does. It's written like that. It's written as a semi-comedy. It's written as a. This is a bit silly. Whereas the new one is not, and is equally bad in all the respects that the 1998 Godzilla right. was bad. Charger, charger glasses, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have some burst bladders here, I think. <laughs> well, before we start talking about the new one, yeah, the, the, the TriStar one, which is known... Have we spoken about Godzilla before? I kind of feel like we've 
done the TriStar Godzilla movie. Gino. We have spoken about it before, yeah. Godzilla in name only. Dudzilla. It's just, <gasps> it's, it's a, yeah, we have spoken about it because I remember we saying have, yeah. why, why it was objectively a bad movie. It's objectively a bad movie for a load of reasons. So, like, this, somebody corrected me. Maybe it was Irene Delson. I think it was you. So, if you're listening, hello. Um, the, the, one of the characters, her first line is, Seropoda Allosaurus. It's not, it's, yeah. they're off at Allosaurus or something. So, and, uh, uh, just all those, God. <laughs> but, right. So, so you've you've you're making a new movie, which is part of like a hallowed, world famous franchise. You're making a movie called Godzilla, right? Yeah. And there's this like long tradition: Godzilla, the original one, one of the most famous movies in all time, and and then obviously all these others. You know, these other ones are less serious, but the same creature. And you have the audacity and the nerve to go. Pah. I'm just going to make my own Godzilla. It's going to look like a lizard. I'll do this. <laughs> We're going to go with that. Like, how dare you? How dare these people just make their own totally like redesign, reimagine Godzilla and then come up with this whole, this whole like scenario and, and backstory to Godzilla that's like a tangent to the it's like way off the scale compared to the, the real Godzilla. And it's, and it's, I mean, you could just remake Godzilla, right? Yeah. You could do that. But what's the point? Well, what's the point of <laughs> the TriStar movie? It's well, just... it was to try and make a, a a fun film that was sort of Godzilla updated for the modern sensibility. Because, let's face it, in 1998, no Western country where this was pitched had just been firebombed, had it? <laughs> <laughs> so the sorts of stuff that go on in the original Godzilla, that's not the appropriate sort of film for 1998 America. The 1998 America, what they wanted was a romp, mm. which they got. Yeah. It's still and objectively a terrible film. I Godzilla don't think it's size. a good film. Yeah, yes, it does change size constantly. The babies, the stupid pointless babies. Yeah. Uh, it has many, many flaws. I agree with this. Um, and it's not even in the same class as the original Godzilla. I mean, that became very obvious. It's not the same class of film. But it isn't as bad as people say. It's funnier and it's sillier. And if you watch it as more of a funny, silly thing, you don't think, ooh, hallowed Godzilla when you go in. Then it's it's like yeah okay it's an all right monster film it's kind of funny. I I do admit that my negative opinions on it are rather similar to you remember when we were talking about um Weta Workshop and we were talking about uh, Smaug, <laughs> and I said how there were those people that say how dare they how dare they call it a dragon and it's only yeah. got two legs <laughs> I refuse to. <laughs> Dexter Jackson <laughs> holding up like effigies of him, burning effigies of him in the street. It's like, no, no. Right. It's kind of similar yeah. to that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I'm hating it because just because it's called Godzilla. Whereas if it was called the New York Monster <laughs> or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's called the New York Monster. The New York Monster, where the worms yeah. coil in perfect cycles. <laughs> <laughs> Ferris Bueller meets the guy from Desperate Housewives. Who has a stutter and Jean Renault. Yeah. So they call it like 
that, then, then it wouldn't be so bad because they make the point of now on the plus side of the movie, the creature is an is meant to be an animal. It's meant to like okay, they said that they went to some is it is it em, Emmerich Roland Emmerich sounds about right. No, I don't know. I don't nah. remember any films. I'm, I'm pretty sure films directed by Emmerich. Um, Dean, no, is it Dean somewhere? Ah, oh, dear, I don't know. Uh, Googling too much trouble. Oh, fingers yeah. too tired. Um, yeah, what was I saying? That it was a real animal. Oh yeah, they make they try to make the point that they went for something that was you know biologically plausible, biomechanically plausible, which of course is always a dangerous thing to say because immediately there's like a raft of comments from yeah. biomechanicists and paleontologists and zoologists saying, <laughs> "Are you kidding?" There's a Per Christensen paper where he sort of says that. There's no way an animal of like whatever two hundred thousand tons could run at forty miles an hour and you know stand like a dinosaur or a lizard or whatever. And uh, the original Godzilla is far more accurate because it's got columnar limbs and. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, but if it wasn't called if it wasn't called Godzilla, I don't know. But yeah, the, so, because so also to... I think what was interesting about the nineteen ninety eight film, which isn't in either the original Godzilla or the new one, is that it wasn't actually. Um, invulnerable. Mm. Well, they kill um, it. Yeah, they kill it. And they kill it with normal weapons. And the reason they, in the 1998 one, that they couldn't get to it is because they didn't know where it was a lot of the time. And mm. it was embedded in Manhattan. So they didn't want to just go blow things up. Um, yeah. And I thought that was, was, original... an int- that was an interesting little conceit of the film. that It wasn't just invulnerable to fire. It wasn't invulnerable to, um, you know, tank shells and stuff like this, which... Of course, an animal that size wouldn't be. You know, this would do serious damage to an animal that size. That sorts of weaponry that modern armies can put on you, rockets and that sort of stuff. We um, should say, of course, the original Godzilla was killed as well, but in a very unusual. Well, actually, they they killed him by an attack on his environment rather than the creature itself, right? Yes. Or uh, the the oxygen destroyer works by doesn't it doesn't it only function in seawater? I think it does only function in water. Yeah, and it. Yeah. Um, Yes, it was a bit unclear. The science actually was something we didn't really mention very much of the science in the original Godzilla film, which was, in some ways, they got actual facts completely wrong, but overall, it felt vaguely plausible. Yeah, did they really get facts completely wrong, or is it just that they thought differently? Well, I was under the impression that in the fifties, no one thought that Jurassic was two million years ago. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, because that was that was the thinking back in like the late eighteen hundreds. They didn't have any concepts of geological time then. And they, I remember reading things where people talk about Cretaceous dinosaurs living a couple of million years ago. But um, yeah, you're right. By the by, the fifties that wouldn't have been so. Mm, um, yeah, but their actual like the the way they proceeded and you know the scientists bringing evidence and that sort of stuff. I felt like in the original film that was reasonably well done. Um, and of course, in the the newer ones, I think less, much less so. Oh yeah, I like the fact that is it Dr. Serizawa, the, the the scientist, um, when he when he like enters the courtroom, there's a court hearing in the original Godzilla. When he like enters and when he says a statement and when he finishes, everybody respectfully stands, claps. It's like, yes. oh, the opinion of a scientist. Oh, yes, very good, very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, but so, the the, the a thing, a disconnect I've always felt with the TriStar Gino movie is the fact that, like, this animal 
Ferris Bueller makes the point that this animal is just being an animal. It's just doing what it what it does, and it's and it's found this place that apparently is suited as as an environment. And um, okay, it's a eighty meter long, two hundred thousand ton carnivorous reptile which is tearing the city apart. Okay, but so in in reality, people probably would do everything they could to destroy it. But it th there's always a disconnect because when they kill it it gets tangled up on the bridge and they're firing rockets into it and stuff it's like i always got the impression when i saw the movie that you're meant to be going yeah die godzilla scum <laughs> whereas i'm actually going oh no but, but i rewatched that because i thought you've mentioned that last time and then my rewatching, no that's not at all what that seems like that's a tragic scene is and matthew broderick is looking into its eye yeah. when it dies and it's like oh that's a shame <laughs> so um no i disagree that is that in that uh, in that scene it's yeah it's barely just, uh, i need to watch it again <laughs> i think you do i think you need to watch it without the baggage of thinking that it's going to be some sort of super serious um you know uh original godzilla type film and just watch it as the romp it is i think you'll find right. that it's nowhere near as bad as you remember and some of the lines and stuff are actually quite funny so there you go listeners John Conway sticks up for the 1954 Honda original Godzilla, fair enough, but also the 1998 TriStar Gino Ferris Bueller meets... Oh, wait, no, no, wait, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying this is a good film. It is a bad film. It's not a good film. But, yeah, it's not as bad as people seem to think that it is. What did you actually think of Gino or Zilla's design? Chinny Monster. In Sorry, which one? Zilla, Gino, the 1998 TriStar, Dean Zilla. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's a big sort of theropod with knobbly bits all over it, isn't it? A big chin, uh, yeah, but it's a big got like chin. it's got like lizard feet because it's got uh like it's got some sort of like laterally divergent fourth or fifth digit. Yeah, sticking out the side and because it's and it, I think it's got four or five fingers. Because it's meant to be a supersized, irradiated iguana. Iguana, yeah. Um, but it's bipedal and everything. I mean, it's just, it does, it is much more theropody than, yeah, in overall form than lizardy. I thought it was interesting, sort of as a fast Godzilla, you know, like fast mm. zombie. <laughs> <laughs> Speed zombies. There's a, te there's a couple of like Tetrapod Zoology articles on the anatomy and biology of Godzilla. Uh, so the Godzilla from the classic, you know, 60s and 70s movies. Uh, and, and also there's um, Tracy Ford did a bunch of anatomical illustrations of Zilla. That's the name for the 1998 thing. And um, yeah, there's a Tetrapod Zoology article on the anatomy of the TriStar Zilla, Godzilla. So I think, I think we need to move on to the, to the, main, mm. the main deal here because we've talked about the 1998 one before. Um, yes, so... Let you 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 start you start with um the new Godzilla come on um um well, what was the first thing I wanted to say uh well f f so yeah this new Godzilla film um well I I really liked it I really enjoyed it but I'll tell you I enjoyed it primarily because of the Mutos you remember I said last time the movie should be called Meet the Mutos. Mm -hmm. Because yes. it's about Mutos. It's like Godzilla. I'm not complaining. I kind of like the 
moderately slow pace of the movie. I like the fact that it's not like it's not like Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim opens with us looking into the maw of a kaiju, whereas Godzilla, Godzilla itself is not introduced until some significant way into the movie. I think the, the, we first first see it when it's swimming towards Hawaii. I think can't remember, but um, I've only seen it once. It's it's like it's like minor. It's it's like a background thing, and it doesn't really have an important role until the fight. At the, oh, spoilers! <laughs> spoilers, yeah. By the way, there's got to be epic spoilers throughout this. I mean, there's quite a lot of things I want to talk about. I want to talk about the mutas. I want to talk about the, the kind of human side of the story. Um, I want to talk about some of the like the complaints people had about the the film. But I don't think that that Godzilla was like it wasn't a movie about Godzilla. It's like Godzilla was there, but um, but overall, overall, I enjoyed it. I mean, those are my initial thoughts. Right. Well, I'm going to agree with you. I liked the mutas. I actually, you know, the whole animal arc of the story i quite liked that you know and i thought the reimagining of godzilla as the hero okay yeah that's that's fine i like that if you're going to do that as a you know you're going to come up with a modern twist on godzilla also i think in some ways it was oddly in keeping with the original film um there was some sort of talk about that sort of thing but um I thought that the human story they tacked onto it was absolute dreck. Mm. And I'm not sure what dreck is, but I well, think it was I terrible. Agree. It was just, it was appalling. And <laughs> yeah. in every way that these things are appalling. And I felt like, <laughs> seriously, this is what they've given us? This is mm. what they're doing? I, I was. I enjoyed watching the film, but afterwards I felt a bit like I'd been insulted. <laughs> that this... I came out fist pumping. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can I can picture you like, whoa, Godzilla, yeah. <laughs> I did literally. <laughs> but I thought afterwards, I thought, oh my god, that was Jesus. But, but that's that's really pretty poor. Um, Godzilla is Jesus. <laughs> that's pretty poor. <laughs> yeah. Um. And much less sophisticated than lots of other films, recent films, and much, much worse than the standard writing in sci-fi stuff. Yeah, I would. I have significant problems with the human story. So, so we go on. Sorry. No, I don't. Sorry. Well, I was going to. Well, there's quite a bit to say about it. I mean. Um, so, but the thing is, like, a lot of people have already said. A lot of people have already said much of the same stuff. I don't. I don't know where to start. So I'll start. I'll start here with the fact that we're introduced due to the trailers and teasers and so on. We know that Brian Cranston is going to be uh, Malcolm in the Middle, Breaking Bad, which I've never ever watched. You watch Breaking Bad? Yeah. Okay. Um, Brian Cranston's going to be a major character in it. We also see that Juliette Binoche plays his wife, and she's going to be a character in it. Um, and we're sort of we're played. Um, I was led to believe from the trailer that Juliet Binoche's character, Sandra Brody, would actually maybe be a major character in it because you hear her describing some stuff about Godzilla. Turns out it's not her talk. That's not her voice. That's Dr. Is she called Vivian Graham, played by Sally Hawkins. This, this, one of these yeah. two, with all due respect, completely useless yeah. scientist characters in the movie. So anyway, so Brian Cranston's in it, Juliet Binoche's in it, but what the hell? 
they're like Juliette Binoche is in it for like I don't have a thing for Juliette Binoche really. I'm just like she's she's a famous actor and yet she's in the movie for like about a minute. Her whole role is she's seen acting as a mom, and then she's seen acting as a nuclear um, uh, facility, you know, uh, safety person, and she dies. So mm. she's in it for like a whole of a minute. Well, may as well may as well have been someone we don't even know. Who cares? It's Juliette Binoche. Doesn't Indeed, matter. Yeah. And then Brian Cranston. His performance, I honestly thought, was brilliant, really brilliant, really strong. And I thought that bit when he's talking to her over the CB, and um, he, he, there's a lot of emotion in that scene, and he's like, you know, he knows she's going to, yeah, it's almost certain she's going to die. I found that genuinely sort of edge of tears moving. I found that very, very strong performance. So he's set up to be this big character in the movie, and then he's killed as well, like pretty early on. I'm pretty sure in like the first act to the film or the first third or quarter of the film which okay you know hey i watch game of thrones you know anyone can die you watch game yeah. of thrones yeah yeah. So, <laughs> yeah it's one of the better yeah, yeah you know if you can do that you can do this and get away with that's great but anyone unfortunately, can die in this film yeah. you can't but, yeah, but sorry, in this exactly what a waste what a waste of him and to extent her her as well and instead okay everyone's complaining about aaron tyler johnson plays a character called ford brody and is <laughs> it's even in his goddamn name, Ford Brody. Ford Brody. So he's Kickass from the Kickass movies. That's where I. That's how I always think of him. Um, and so his his actual what happens with his character is uh, I can't. What the, the thing the thing with his character is just like it doesn't make any sense because he's like. Okay, in the crudest possible terms, he's some kind of like army guy. Yeah. And he like turns up and there's some like army guy stuff happening. And he says, Hey, I'm an army guy. Let me tag along with you, army guys. And they go, Yeah, we need some more army guys coming <laughs> with us. It's like, that's not how the army works. <laughs> it reminds me of, I seem to be, okay, we were talking last time about Shirley Ghostman. Well, I also seem to be the only person on earth that ever watched the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Another uh, Game of Thrones link because of actors involved. But anyway, Sarah yeah, Connor yeah. Chronicles. Sarah Connor Chronicles often had this confusing thing where, now in the future, so I'm not going to talk for long about this. Right, bear with me here. Sure. So we know that in the future, after um, uh, what's what's the big like uh, what's the D-Day event called in the the Judgment Day? Judgment Day. Yeah. We know that after Judgment Day. Basically, the survive the humans that survived the nuclear holocaust are basically in a constant war with Terminators and Sot and Skynet, and we know that there's like a basically a ragtag civilian resistance, which is basically just people like you and me that are literally fighting for their lives and cobbling together weapons they can and ganging together and fighting against machines. So, a civilian army is like a you know guerrilla army. But in the Sarah Connor Chronicles, when we're introduced to people from the future that are part of the human resistance, they often seem to be military guys. And when they meet up with real world military characters, they say, oh, yeah, I'm actually like, I don't know, look, I'm a lieutenant or something. They go, hey, no problem, you know, come and come and train with us or come on this secret mission with us. It's like, that's not how there's like. You don't just like attach to a, a like an official military organization. There has to there's a strict chain of command and there's paperwork involved and there's like special little passes you have to have and all that kind of crap. <laughs> so I it didn't ring true to me the fact that that um Ford Brody just turns up and says, Oh yeah, I'm an army guy and I'm an expert on bombs. Hey, no problem, we've got a bomb, come with us. It's like that. Yeah. 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 Plus, the, the biggest criticism, of course, has been 
I always feel it's a bit mean, you know, wailing on actors for doing a bad job, but it's like, he's just, they may as well have got a zombie to play it or something. I mean, just his, his performance. Uh, this, this has been the biggest criticism I've seen of the movie. People just saying, oh, the main human character is just like, but on the other hand, my response to that is, you know, there really are people in the real world that are like that. (laughs) No, but I think you're missing. Yeah. But I think this sort of criticism misses the, uh, it's, it's almost like people criticize films. Like there's just a superficial thing they can do. They set up this whole thing from start to finish. They didn't need some sort of colorless army guy as the main character. They shouldn't have done that. It was boring and stupid. And so I sort of feel a bit sorry for him that he was given a stupid character to play, like generic tough guy army character. What can you really do with that after all these years? Nothing. It's stupid. It's a dumb dumb role that shouldn't be in a film. I agree. And given the strength that they had given Brian Cranston's character, all the trailers and stuff all play like sound bites from Joe Brody. Brian Cranston's character, it's like, I was sure it was going to be a story of him uncovering what's, what's going on with the Mutos and, and Godzilla. And then there are other characters as well that are not bad, like Admiral Stentz, I think he's called, played by David Strathan. He was pretty good, like, you know, hard-headed, intelligent uh, military person. Um... The, but the scientists, yeah. Well, you know, Ken Watanabe playing Doctor Serizawa, and implying that there's this like link between his character and whatever the 1954 events. Um, I I like him. I think he's good. But the problem is, him and Doctor Graham, the Sally Hawkins character, totally wasted. Because what did they do? They just stood around. They said like a couple of lines, looked yeah. confused and worried and sort of said, it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. All these kind of like this twee Hollywood crap that they, you know, these reminds me of what um, um, Scully says in the X-Files. Yeah. Scully in the X-Files, Gillian, Gillian is it Anderson. Yeah. She's got all these lines that are meant to sound like the sort of thing a real scientist would say, but they're not. They're flowery, arty-farty crap about like <laughs> the balance of nature. And, and it's like, that's not what scientists think, and it's not what they say. So yeah. Dr. Serizawa says in his, like, one of his famous, famous lines in Godzilla is, you know, nature has a balance, and we must leave it, and it will sort the balance out. What a pile of crap. Nature yeah. doesn't have a balance. That's what evolution is, people. It's, unba- <laughs> it's imbalance. Nature's Perpetual imbalance. <laughs> Yes, yeah. nature is nature is a mess. With every everything is in flux. Yes. Things are constantly changing, and there's, yeah, all, all, yeah. So for someone who's meant to be, I mean, I don't. I can't, what kind of scientist was he? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> just a generic <laughs> Japanese um, scientist. <laughs> Japanese doomsday scientist. <laughs> um, for him to say this stuff, I mean, something telling them that they should let them fight. Well, that's pretty cool because it made for an epic end of movie, but. Um, but yeah, the scientists are wasted, and in like I, I said, I said similar things to what I'm about to say in my write-up of Pacific Rim. But it's like if you're gonna have scientists as perpetual characters, they don't have to be main characters, but if they're background characters, it's like 
when will people actually look at the kind of scientists that get in the, in these roles? Because the kind of scientists that become official military advisors or official experts on some real big problem aren't quiet, docile people with meek opinions. They are like intimidating, strong, you know, very clever people who are brilliant at putting complex ideas like on the table. It's like, no, mm -hmm. no, what yeah. you are saying is wrong because fact A, B, C, D. What we really need to do is look at evidence X, Y, Z and then act in this way. Well, I think you're wrong, yeah. Dr. Sarah's Mr. Scientist. <laughs> no, no, listen to me again, you military idiot. It's like <laughs> they need characters that are, you know, that, that have gotten to a big position because they're charismatic. They are like strong in their convictions, not because they're, well, they, they are often arrogant, but because they have the weight of evidence on their side and they are able to use it. And, and to have scientists as like meek, quiet people who basically say useless things or erroneous yeah. things. Wander around looking worried the whole film, not saying anything. <laughs> you know, it's just... Yeah. Um, also, on the human side, I've got to say, again, with just being like complete sexist. The whole way through and i just thought really still no better it, I, I did a little tally of like characters through godzilla films they've got no better since the 50s in terms of speaking women's roles and mm. i would expect in 2014 that they would have managed one major female character yeah and we thought we had one but she died straight away she dies yeah and I, i'm I'm sorry, this is sort of getting a... Uh, we sort of laugh about this, but, like, television shows have got this already. You go and watch modern television shows, the good ones, they're much, much, much less sexist than films are. There's female... There's strong female characters... Strong female characters, that's a terrible phrase. There's main, major female characters in all of them, protagonists, the whole bit. And But for some reason, in these big films, we're getting nothing. We're getting what we had in the 50s. And I'm sorry, I just think that's, it's getting a bit embarrassing. And I just, I'm not wanting to keep going and seeing these dumb films that are written by, well, that are written to be sexist and not providing us with good characters. And I think that there's some limitations in the medium, right? So there's... There's things like they've only got a short period of time to tell the story, so, and when the story isn't mainly about human characters, it's mainly about a monster, there's limited backstory you can give to people. You can't make people complicated. They've got to be recognisable um, uh, stereotypes, if you like. I think that's sort of the reasoning behind it. But I think that it, they're still doing a rubbish job at that. Mm. Um, even given those, those constraints... I think this is just really, really bad. So Hollywood, give us your money and we will do the movies for you and we'll do a much better job. And um Although, and this is something I'll say for Prometheus, which I didn't say which I didn't say because it didn't really occur to me, but it, it is less sexist than lots of other lots of these films we've been talking about recently. That's like true. Pacific That's true. Room and this one. Yeah. Yeah. All the all, all the characters are equally stupid, whatever they yes. say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what, as you'd expect from the alien, um, alien franchise, which has a history of almost gender-blind characters. You know, a character could be any 
any gender and it doesn't really matter um yeah mm. but yes all the characters are equally stupid in that but yeah so uh, i th- i sort of felt like that was a you know a insult to injury of the whole writing of the thing also what strikes me as weird that afterwards did is this why they made the trailers like this they realized that these were all problems so they up the brian cranston and the julia Binoche. I, w- I would have sworn that she was a major character because because that bit where um you hear a woman's voice saying they weren't trying to uh they weren't bombs they weren't tests they were trying to kill it or is it like maybe it's ken watanabe's voice and a woman's voice mm. i i kind of thought i mean maybe that's because i'm stupid but i did kind of think i thought you were meant to think that was Juliet binoche's voice in which case it seemed like she wasn't just a person that goes to a nuclear power plant and dies but it seemed like she was in some way part of the backstory okay that's not the case it was this it was this other person dr graham but um who was forgettable character i mean you know no disrespect to her but you know what role did she play she was like introduced as a scientist and i think she said two lines yeah. so um she's like to- token she's a token woman hey we've got loads of women in this film there's one that cries and there's one yeah. that stands in the background exactly one that, <laughs> one that stands in the background one that dies and one that cries that's just this <laughs> is really really poor showing oh sorry womankind um yes sorry humanity in general i mean aren't most humans women Yes. Sorry, humans. Fifty-one percent. That's what people always used to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so yeah. So that that's. I'm I'm pleased with that. We've just covered most of the stuff I wanted to say as humans. Um, Yes. So terrible, terrible job, Um, and lots of stupid stuff. As now, now we move on to the minutiae and the references. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Did you notice? Did you notice in the background? Oh, the audience loves that. Ah, well, did you notice throughout the film, right from the scene in the classroom where Aaron Taylor Johnson, Ford Brody, when he was a kid, all the time in the background you see images of insect metamorphosis or arthropod metamorphosis. So there's that like hinted at in the background, and there's also scenes where you see like toys of like um dinosaur type creatures and there's like stegosaur toys and stuff like that so they um and i did wonder what because obviously i knew having done a bit of homework you know i knew about about the mutos beforehand um yeah i knew there was going to be some like arthropod style creatures involved but the fact that they kept on hinting at this like metamorphosis and chrysalises and emerging butterflies and stuff like that so like, oh, i know what you're getting at here so, yeah. Now, major plus point. I loved the Mutos. I thought they were brilliant. And like I say, like Godzilla was great. The design of Godzilla, I thought, was pretty awesome. Um, but the the Mutos, yeah, really, really enjoyed watching them. Can't wait to see them again. The fact that you can't really work out what they are. They've got little feet, like they've got hoofy little feet, like ungulates, antelopes, or something. But they've right. got but. Yeah, but they they they're buggy things, and they've got like a weird I don't know they're, they're who knows what's going on with their head, sort of pseudo xenomorph thing, um, and just the way they move the, the limbs and what they do with their limbs and the and the, and the life cycle. Now there's been a substantial discussion on uh, Facebook. There's like a whole Facebook group set up to discuss muto <laughs> life cycle. Um, Simian coding, I think is. Uh, set it up. 
I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pronouncing his name wrong. I've never, never said it before. So, um, and so the, 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 the sexual dimorphism thing they went for, the fact that there's this flighted male and big flightless female, you know, that's all pretty cool stuff. The whole, like, the biology of the weird relationship between Godzilla and Mutos. Apparently, a lot of this is explained in the, there's a book, which I haven't seen. Mm. There's a book, which is like the whole backstory. To, well, not the, the making of Godzilla. And that explains some of the, the, their thoughts behind it. Apparently, it's like that. So... This is, I think, Dr. Serizawa's character explains this in the movie, that the idea that, so Godzilla basically is a dinosaur, and we are um, shown like a real ye olde fashioned sort of 1960s dinosaur family tree, like big old fat swamp, swamp, swamp living sauropods and stuff like that, tail dragon tyrannosaurs. And um, it's said that, that, that these beasts like collected radioactive, like thrived on radioactive energy or something, because back then the other world was really young and it was everything was super radioactive compared yes. to how it is now. <laughs> okay, we're, we're gonna have to let stuff like that go for a movie like this because it's not gonna work otherwise, I suppose. That's right. But, um, yeah, yeah, yeah the central conceits that you just have to let go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then the idea is that the mutos, and that stands for the massive unidentified terrestrial organism, mutos, uh, the mutos like. They parasitize or hunt um, Godzilla-type creatures because they want the radioactive energy that the Godzillas have stored. But that means that Godzillas like hate mutos and destroy them, seek them out and destroy them on sight. Because it was kind of difficult to understand exactly why Godzilla was so angry. Well, why was he going to, is it San Francisco? Yeah, where the female Muto was. Yeah. Is it like he was going there because he knew that was a source of radioactive energy or because he just like has some unstoppable desire to swim hundreds of kilometers and kill <laughs> kill Mutos? I, I can't, can't remember. But um, And then the whole life cycle. So the, the sexual dimorphism thing indicates that they are sexual organisms. They're going to reproduce sexually. But don't we see that before they've met up that she's already um, pregnant because we see the eggs in her belly with the developing babies? Is that right? I can't remember the exact chronology of the film. And then there's the fact that yeah. they, the mutos come out of giant, basically giant chrysalises. They, what do they call them? They call them cysts or something, which is not the right term for a... I, I, I couldn't tell you what the t correct technical definition of a cyst is, but I think it's like a, a dormant... Yeah, I think uh, it's a dormant stage, isn't it? Rather than a... Right. Yeah. Oh, reproductive so stage. Yeah. Because I was thinking, because I was thinking if that was like meant to be like chrysalis and they emerge from the chrysalis, does it mean that they've undergone a metamorphosis? In which case... But maybe that's not, not so. I don't, I don't know. I'll have to see what's in this book. But what I was going to say is that if there is a metamorphosis, and I've already said that that's hinted at by some of the other imagery in the film, that would be inconsistent with the fact that when we see the developing mutos in the eggs, they are undergoing direct development, which means that they're turning into basically miniature versions of the adult. So mm. that would seem to be, um, what's that word? Uh, uh, inconsistent. With <laughs> Sorry. That would seem to be inconsistent with the fact that there's like, is there metamorphosis? In which case there's a larval phase which is very different from the sexual adult phase, or that seems inconsistent with the direct development phase. However, having seen other people talk about this at great length, 
Great mm. thanks. Basically, when it comes to non-tetrapods, non-vertebrates even, you can make up what you like because anything goes. It's like stupid animals. It's like, oh my God. There are animals that like have that switch between there are like arthropods and, and worms I got nematodes and other things, various groups where they're sexual during one phase of their life and they're parthenogenetically asexual at another stage. There's some that like have a larval phase in one part of their life cycle and like will produce direct developing young at another time. It's like kind of any combination can work. So if you're prepared to take that on board, then what the mutos do is actually is actually okay. You could you, like a, a female could be parthenogenetic, but uh, but could still you know pair up and 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 mate with a with a with a male. So um, yes. But I did just I thought they I thought they were brilliant, really brilliant creatures. The the mutos and like they were the stars of the film more than more than Godzilla was. And um, some of the scenes just I mean the bit in the the in the train was it on Hawaii? where uh, I can't remember exactly what happens. Is it that the lights go out and then the lights come back on and it's like, oh dear, we're heading towards a 30 meter tall giant animal that's walking towards us over the railway track. I thought so that was a just awesome scene, really good. And um, filled me with the proper sense of dread that you would get if you're on a train and it's going towards <laughs> a giant monster. Ah, oh, yeah, this has really ruined my day. Um, so yeah, I thought they, yeah. Were, thought they were good. Back to the, yeah. the 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 human angle on that story was also typically clumsy and rubbish. Oh, I mean, thing. so Mister Neck thicker than my head. Uh, <laughs> um, Ford Ford Brody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah he's, he's what he's looking after some Japanese kid. Yeah. And then he, the the train goes and he like catches him and yeah and then you never see him again. I mean, yeah. oh, just the film was just full of rubbish like that. It no, hold just... on. You, you did see the kid get joined up with his parents. Okay, yeah, but yeah. so like just, just injected for that that scene. Uh, just oh, mm. so clumsy, so bad. Mm. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to uh, get too much into the human thing again. No, no, you say what you want. Yeah, well, I was gonna. Yeah, I, I, I found the structure of the film a bit confusing, right? I, mm. I mean, not confusing as in I didn't really know what was happening. I just felt like it was all quite disjointed. Like, oh, now we're on a train, and now we're doing that, and now we're on another train, and blah, 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 blah. and it didn't feel like it had a proper arc to me. the The animals had an arc, but the human story seemed messy and confusing and uninteresting in a way i didn't feel the drama of it you know yeah none of it was none of it was tense well i thought it was it was kind of hard to figure i mean there was there was a definite story this is again why the film should be called meet the mutos because there was a clear story for the mutos it was like as soon as we know that the the male one is going somewhere for a reason and that reason is the female one and they're going to have babies and there's a story involving like how they're using a nuclear bomb to basically fuel the growth of their babies and they have a fight with another monster which is godzilla that's a nice very clear linear story but godzilla's story it's like many times it, it didn't i was too wrapped up in it i was like too interested in watching the movie to think about it too hard but if you think about it, it's like what the hell is godzilla doing yeah 
he like comes up, he walks around near the Golden Gate Bridge a little bit. They fire rockets at him. He puts his tail in the air. I don't really know why. Um, yeah, it's like, <laughs> um, oh, so were you going to say anything else? Because I've just remembered the hemopoph, 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 <laughs> the vertebral, the ventral vertebral processes in the Godzilla skeleton. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, when when we see the the um we see this like weird um skeleton giant skeleton which is underground which is where one of the muto um cysts or pods or chrysalises whatever is we see a giant elongate skeleton which i believe we're meant to interpret as a godzilla mm. that's presumably what it is it's meant to be a godzilla and we're looking into the animal's rib cage with its the dorsal side of its skeleton flat on the back so we're looking at the ventral sides of its dorsal vertebrae and is this something where they screwed up mightily on the anatomy because they didn't really know what they were doing or is it something they specifically put some design into because do you remember that sticking upwards well <laughs> because the animal's on its back we're seeing yeah. the undersides right so sticking upwards so in into, words, in, into its body cavity yeah yeah. Sticking upwards from the bottoms of its vertebrae, so in the live animal that would be projecting downwards from its vertebrae, are these big, tall processes. Um, I wondered if they were hinting, if they were meant to be structures called hemopotheses, which are these um, um, like ventrally projecting structures that I've got a horrible feeling I'm using the wrong term. Like that, ba basically, crocodiliforms. And some groups of dinosaurs, particularly Manoraptorans, they have like ventrally projecting processes on some of their vertebral centra. And I wondered if they were trying to like, if it was a reference to that, in which case it was maybe hinting at the idea. Godzilla looks really, in, in a way, he looks a bit like crocodilomorphish. He's like big, gnarly reptile, big plate-like scoots. Um, some people have already said online that, you know, he looks a bit like a sort of supersized Rausukian or something. Um, where they may be hinting at the idea there's some like uh, <laughs> sort of croc lineage archosaur characters mm. in this animal. I mean, that's pretty, pretty yeah. uh, subtle. Yeah. Yes, I doubt it, but possibly because you know you the sort of people that are designing these films, I mean, they're designing the things in these films, they often like. Listeners well, to this very podcast, so wait. it seems possible. Hello, listeners in Creature Design Land. There's yeah. a bit when there's there's interviews where you see the director. Uh, is it? I've forgotten his name. Roland. Uh, wait, you see in the background like their files of collected reference stuff, and there's like a big file, like twenty, fifteen centimeters thick, that's called like anatomical references or something and i would love to know what was in that because you can bet that they took a million images of like you know turtle skin and crocodile skin and lizards mm. and stuff like that but um they must also have looked at things like you know dinosaurs and other fossil reptiles the structures are hypopotheses hypopotheses hemopotheses yes. of course are the like the so-called chevrons or whatever that descend downwards from tail vertebrae but um, crocodiliforms have these things called hypotheses that project ventrally from the cervical vertebrae and sometimes I think some of the first few dorsal vertebrae and I wondered if they were going with elaborated versions of those in the Godzilla maybe they weren't but um, I, I like the fact that Godzilla was they super sized I mean incredibly robust 
Um, it wasn't that he was fat. I think he was just meant to be hugely, ridiculously muscular. And this explains why his head doesn't look that big because his body's so like massively fat and thick. Mark yeah. Witten addresses this in his article on the anatomy of Godzilla. And then there's the fact that he's got like stumpy sort of tortoise feet or sauropod feet. I thought that was a really intelligent design move. Yes. Doesn't have doesn't have like long spreading toes like the nineteen ninety eight Godzilla did and like other Godzillas have. The original Godzilla, interestingly, has sort of like plantigrade feet. Long spreading toes, but plantigrade. Well, yeah, men in a suit, yeah. I guess. But um yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of somewhat close to the original Godzilla, but even more, more, uh, yeah, gravipedal type foot, yeah, which I think was a good choice. Mm. And he does seem to have gills. Hmm, I didn't notice that. Well, uh, there was a picture I was collecting yesterday for the Tezucon talk, and um, there's some photos that show very clearly curved plates on the side of the neck. Which, um, yeah, Mark says they move in the movie, which I don't remember seeing, actually. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I kind of wish they'd done more on the, um, well, I don't kind of wish. I think it would have been a much better film if they'd done more on the on the things that we're interested in. Like more about what, what are they and what are they doing. Um, I think that would have made for a better film, more concentration on the animals rather than... Oh, this stupid Rather thick neck army guys. Yeah, so so to all our friends out there in Hollywood that are listening, yeah, come on, you you, you know where this is going. Come on, we need we need a movie. It's going to work out. <laughs> <laughs> no, Just but animals, I... animals and women, <laughs> purely for the purely for the purposes of sexual fair representation, <laughs> not, not not for anything else. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, in some ways, that's just remake Alien. I wouldn't be happy with that. You know, just keep making Alien and Aliens over and over again. That's fine. That'd be, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that even a film like this, it can do with more more exploration of what the animals are and what they're doing mm-hmm. and less um, crazy scenes and you don't even know why they're happening. And yeah, it's... <laughs> Scientists looking confused, and um, although I, I should imagine it would be rather confusing, without doubt, and even although scared. he'd been studying them for ages, hadn't he? Right, Dr. Serizawa. Yeah, yeah. So he'd been in that station that was sort of studying the um, whatever it is, the cyst or whatever. Right. Yeah. Was it a cyst? Was that the one? That's, because there's two sorts of things, isn't there? There's um, it was the one, um. Yes, yes, it was the one where they assembled the sort of like electric cage around it, which proved yeah. completely useless. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're so. sure that was going to work. Yeah. Oh, and the whole the 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 mutose defense mechanism, this electromagnetic pulse thing. Yeah. Um. Now I remember hearing from someone that the whole idea of an electromagnetic pulse is fundamentally flawed, and that it doesn't work in the way that it does in movies and stuff. That if you like have this sudden discharge of energy it doesn't like knock out all the electronics or something but i don't know what i'm talking about so uh, I don't no, know if you as would... far as i know no that's a real thing it, um 
electromagnetic magnetic pulse can overload. Um, oh dear, I don't really know what I'm talking about either. But I think it overloads uh, components in transformers and stuff. So basically, you get a pulse that will blow out. Um, uh, the tran the large transformers and stuff that would be on the grid, right? Because they're designed to be take to a certain amount. And if you give it a short, sharp pulse of something, it will knock it out. Mm. And this is a serious problem. It does happen. Um, nuclear blasts cause it. Um, I do believe this is a, this is a thing that happens. But, and the reason, well, what I've heard is that, <laughs> God, again, story. So they know these things can do it. They know this is their main defense mechanism. So what do they do? They keep flying helicopters and planes <laughs> at them. Whereas they should have got wooden gliders. Well, no, forget with... the helicopters and planes. <laughs> Ewok gliders and drop I'm drops. sure there are, I mean, tanks, I'm sure, have got electronic components in them now, but I'm sure you can modify things so that you don't need so much of that. Also, things are, because this is a known weapon, um, military stuff is hardened against that, right? They mm. They do have defences against... Um, EMP attacks. So perhaps they they thought they were safe because they had these defences, but the EMP was so strong it overwhelmed them. But still, that doesn't explain why they kept doing it, why they kept falling into this trap. What's the point of sending all these helicopters when you know when you've been hitting these animals with rockets and stuff, it doesn't do anything? They know that. Yeah. Yet they keep doing it. I mean, it just seems like a recipe for spending billions and billions of dollars and losing thousands of lives what's the point but don't people do that in war like uh operation human shield <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, no they don't i've seen independence day they keep flying yeah, exactly it. independence day <laughs> no in wars they don't there's generally some sort of i mean i'm sure people could dig up some examples of it but in general there's some sort of reasoning it can be really quite um What's the word? Callous or mm. just cold mm. reasoning. But there's some sort of reasoning there, you know. So, for example, you know, Russian defense in World War II, which was famous for being extremely bloody. Mm. Um, the reasoning was that it does make a difference. Yeah, sure, we, we, we will lose three guys for every one of theirs, but we can afford to do that for a little while, right? Whereas I, I'm, try, I'm struggling to think of an example where just obviously completely pointless things are engaged in for, for, for well, ages. On the, the Western Front during the Second World War, wasn't there like um, basically the plan was to just denude a huge area of Eastern Europe? Poland of of people, so there was like this sort of defenseless buffer zone. So part of the plan was just to kill as many people as possible. But, or I don't really, I don't know my military history at all. The, yeah, World but, War Two, um, the, the, certainly this was part of the part of the um, thing. Yeah, okay. So World War One might be the best example where you know it's sort of famous for these. Um, I think movies have turned it into pointless attacks. You know, charging at machine guns and everyone just gets shot down and dead. Right. That's sort of the. Picture with God of Trench Warfare. 
Yes, yes, Blackadder goes fourth. Isn't yeah, that what exactly. we did last time? Yeah. Exactly. And that's exactly why the enemy But that's not actually, uh, you know, I've read a bit of, of Will, um, World War One military history, and that's just not the case. Those those attacks did sort of work. You could get into the other trench. You could um, break through their lines. But what would happen after that is things would tend to break down. It was difficult to communicate. It was difficult to keep up the plan. But the actual just running across no man's land and diving into the other guy's trench, incredibly bloody and awful thing to do, but it did achieve its objective, at least in the short term. Um, so I would say that the way the military is engaging with the Mutos and Godzilla seemed mainly designed to show us helicopters being and planes falling out of the sky not to show us what people yes. might actually try uh, so uh, why why would the mutos have evolved the response that involves emitting a giant electromagnetic pulse anyway exactly, exactly. Do we, do we, yeah. do there's a long know? history of being attacked by helicopters <laughs> i mean but I, I wonder if it's could it be an exaptational thing where it had originally you know animals use electricity to there are animals aquatic animals rather than terrestrial ones but there are animals that use electrical signals to send you know to send messages or to or to or yeah, well, defense mechanisms to messaging each other weren't they it was a defense mechanism but yeah yeah but would it work well it didn't seem to do anything to animals well it? no because you, you couldn't it wasn't going up to things and touching them like it wasn't conducting electricity was it it was yeah. sending out a massive burst through the atmosphere so um, so that was a little bit. I mean, one explanation odd. might be that they're aliens. Uh, yeah. Did they expe specifically exclude that? They well, again, you'd have to see that whatever this book says. But no, it didn't because all we all we know is that yeah, they've been interacting. Yeah, but books aren't canon, Darren. Of course, this is canon. This is this book is canon. It's written. No, by no, the no. Same... It's part of the merch. Yeah, it's canon, John. No, only the film is canon. <sighs> <laughs> um, we know that Godzillas and Mutos have been interacting for a long time. Is the general idea that like, they've, 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 their evolutionary histories are linked, but as as to their origins, um, we don't we don't know. But, but so because maybe I, they I, come from a planet where this is a useful defense against some sorts of things. How how would it be? But what use of being on another planet be? Because, uh, unless they've co-evolved, yeah, they've co-evolved with something in a different with something that uses machinery and electricity, yeah, yeah. With something that flies planes for yeah. millions and millions, yeah, of years. from a different, different <laughs> galaxy, long, long ago, far, far away. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, and the whole bit at the there's end, there's a crossover. Yeah, bit at the end, I knew what they were going to do with Godzilla. So Godzilla is in quotes dead. It's like, I know what they're doing. They're playing on that thing that reptiles are a little bit freaky and alien, and they look like they're dead, but actually, you know, snake. The snake you think is dead now. It's not. It's just that's just what they look like when they're asleep. Um, yeah, I knew they were going to do that. But yeah. important point: Godzilla is a giant, unstoppable, enormous thing that's literally like knocking over buildings and stuff. And he gets up, and everyone's like, "Yay, it's okay!" Wouldn't they be going, "Kill it, kill it now"? It's like I don't think that. Okay, it's great that he fought those creatures that we didn't like, mm. but would people suddenly go, "Oh, actually"? Not so no, he's all off. right. He's all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I and, think that was that was a central idea of the film, wasn't it? That that's what they were 
come to. He fights think. for us. He yeah, fights that he's, for us. That he's, um, uh, is a defense for humanity. It's, uh, it's the Hanna Barbara Godzilla come to life. There's no Godzuki. Do you know what I'm talking about? The no, Hanna Barbara. Oh, no. you've never watched the. the go and I hate Hanna Barbara cartoons. I hate them all. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, so even though, apart from Penelope Pitstop, hmm. uh, Scooby Doo, Wacky Races, Dick Dastardly, uh, that, that that cat, Top Cat, whatever, just the terrible, terrible things. The Flintstones. I especially hate the Flintstones. But um, <laughs> but Godzilla, Hanna Barbera did a Godzilla cartoon series, and um, it's there's there's a bunch of like people. That go around on a boat, a ship rather. I don't know why. I don't know what they do. They just like going around the world, having fun or something. I don't know. They're meant. They sort of. You get maybe they're meant to be scientists, but some of them are like hip young kids. <laughs> and it's like yeah. there's like a little boy called Danny who wears a cap, and there's a guy with a massive afro who wears sunglasses or something. <laughs> it's like um, it just doesn't really fit. Um, but whenever there's a mo- and, and a monster comes along, a terrible, terrible, unsolvable monster. And they've got this little box with a red button on it, and they press the red button, and <laughs> Godzilla comes out of the sea and fights the monster for them. And it's yeah. just brilliant. And a lot of the creatures in it, in this Hanna-Barbera series, are really good. And in fact, I was half seriously considering the idea at one point that the Mutos might actually be based on... Ah, oh, my phone! Hold on, I'll... we have to stop recording. Sorry, I've got to take this. Remember what I was saying? Yeah, hi. Well, yeah, but I, I'm in the middle of podcasting. I haven't listened to it. I haven't looked at it. Yeah, that's good. Get that. Excellent. See you soon. Love you. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Bye. <laughs> Did you hear any of that? Father's Day. Um, should we just carry on? Yeah. Uh, what were you talking about? So I well, Hanna I, Barbera, yeah, the Mutos being based on something. I, I ser- half seriously thought that maybe the Mutos are based on one of my favourite monsters from the cartoon series, which is a little bit surreal. But this is like some of the monsters in this cartoon series. Well, and like movie kaiju's anyway, I suppose. Okay, it's a giant blue uh, turtle from the Arctic that's got like two sort of spines on the top of its head. And it absorbs uh, magnetic energy from metals and becomes larger over time. Uh, until by the end, it's so big that like Godzilla is like nearly sucked into its mouth because it's like it's Godzilla's that big compared to it. Um, all of you out there listening, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, and it's yeah, it's a really cool monster, the giant, <laughs> giant magnetic metal-eating Arctic turtle monster, and uh, I don't know, just a few. The f- shape of its face reminded me a little bit of the Mutos, but um, that does but, sound. I didn't realise this. This is all quite an interesting thing because a lot of the stuff is pre-shadowed by this, or indeed, I wonder where they were inspired by that. Right. Godzilla is the goodie, and there's a giant what metal-eating thing. Yeah, yeah. That gets more powerful. Presumably, this was part of the story. It gets powerful by trying to fight it. Yeah. So that's um, what, what that's what was happening in this one as well. You can't you don't use nuclear weapons to just make it stronger. Uh, they there's no nuclear weapons in it, given that it's yeah. like a kids' cartoon. But um, so it was on a 1978, 1978, and 1979. The epi- episodes 
the Firebird, the Earth Eater, the Stone Creature, the Megavolt Monsters, the Seaweed Monster, the Energy Beast, the Colossus of Atlantis, the Cyclops Creature, the Chimera, the Minotaur, the Sirens, the Magnetic Monster, the Breeder Beast, the Wachuca, Great Wachuca, <laughs> Diplodocus, that's a time travel episode, that's a good one, Carnivorous Plant, Time Dragon, Godzuki Clone, <laughs> Voltrang's Clone Monster, Giant Fly, Giant Octopus, Axor, the Power Dragon, the Cyborg Whale, Magma Lizards, Moon Monster, <laughs> the Golden Guardians, Flying Manta Ray, Spider Crab, Jellyfish, Sea Turtle, Tropical Fish, Sharks, Squids, Electric Eels, Giant Black Widow, Venus Flytrap, Ants, Giant Beetle, Giant Antlion, Bees, Dragonfly, <laughs> Cobra Group. That's a crossover with, uh, not to be confused with G.I.J. franchise. Or the Ice People of Frios, 26 episodes. Sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> really does. So um, th- I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. Let me just Google magnetic. Um, not Google, search. A magnetic, a magnetic terror, a magnetic monster is threatening the South Pole. Okay, I said Arctic, so obviously yeah. I was really wrong. Godzilla and the team must destroy it before it reaches the pole and destroys the world. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, may, that may or may not be the same one I'm thinking of. I mean, it should be easy to tell because there's images of all these things, um, obviously online. But uh, but uh, there's my favorite like cartoon series as a kid, Hanna Barbera. Godzilla and a million times. Tum- yes, it is the magnetic terror. Um, what I'm thinking of, and uh, um, the, the the only good thing Hanna Barbera ever did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, just watching a bit of the episode now, actually. All right, all right. That's that's just. <laughs> hey, that's, we're sorry. That's taking... sorry. Currently, hmm? our video library can only be streamed in the United States. Yeah, More information. I was going to do a commentary as well. Director's comment. Because <laughs> <laughs> people people want us to do a a um a, a commentary for um Jurassic Park, don't they? I think yep. we should start with doing Hanna Barbera Godzilla. But that's where <laughs> up from the depths, thirty stories high. That's where that comes from. Okay then, good. Godzilla. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. So with that, um. Wonderful uh, little sidetrack. I, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Have we got anything else to say about Godzilla? I mean, I'm sure we'll think of new things to say. I've, I've said all the stuff I wanted to. I mean, basically, for me, it was like, talk about the craptitude with the people, the mutos, and then a few. There was also like the, the whole allegorical thing regarding Godzilla itself. But obviously, I think we covered that substantially with our discussion of the 1954 Honda movie because I read an article online now I I kind of like think you shouldn't ever bother reading movie reviews because it's not like I read a movie review and it affects whether I'm going to see the film or not but I am sometimes interested in exactly what it is that people say about a film and often it's like the stuff they say is just I think a lot of critics are paid to write articles that are critical and it's like you watch a movie, you watch like a movie about monsters. It's generally meant to be a movie about monsters. You, you over, you can overanalyze it to, to, you know, in some cases. And I read this review. I forgot who it was by, and the author was saying that while the original Godzilla, you know, Godzilla was very much a metaphor for the the bomb and all that stuff. He's saying in this one, oh, 
all that's taken away. It's like completely useless. The film may as well not exist. It's like, what's the point of this film? <laughs> and it's like, but are you sure that Godzilla was meant? Why? Why do you watch uh, this movie now and think that the monster has to be a metaphor for anything? Isn't it just a movie about? You know, we now live in a world where it's okay to say, "This is a this is a world where there are giant monsters, and this is what they, this is how they live, and this is what they do." Why could it just not be a movie about a giant monster that comes to town? Okay, as it turns out, it's not because we've said it's about people and it's got the mutos are more important, but. It's like, why would you have to watch the movie and think, oh, this Godzilla doesn't act like an H-bomb at all. I'm, <laughs> I'll just give this film one star out of five. Um, yes, I agree with that. Although I think what makes the original film quite powerful is because of those connections to real events. Without doubt. And I think that the the newest Godzilla, and this is why I rate it probably worse than the 1998 one, is that it's pretentious without having the it's all talk no trousers it's just it's got it's got nothing and yet they did their whole big like quoting oppenheimer and all that sort of stuff beforehand oh, and yes. then and then it just turns out to be like a silly monster romp yeah uh, yeah you, you... You set yourself up for being reviewed as a serious film, and then you didn't deliver. You delivered a monster romp, a pretentious yeah. monster romp, but a monster romp. Yeah. Uh, so that that initial um, Streisanded um, trailer, the one with the Oppenheimer um, voiceover and the <coughs> the scenes of destruction, I think we were definitely cheated because because that that's one of those trailers which is in itself a movie and it's misleading as to the content of the film. So none mm. of that stuff. The scenes in that original t leaked trailer or whatever it was were not in the film. And you remember that we see some giant downed creature, which is not Godzilla, mm. a sort of reptile-like animal. Well, obviously that wasn't in the film. So, so thanks to that, people are going away thinking, oh, there's going to be several different kinds of monsters in the movie. And then when the, when the proper trailers come out, People are saying, "Oh, there's. We see a thing that's definitely Mothra. We see a thing that's definitely Rodan. We see something that's Angras. Like, no, no. There's just fleeting glimpses of, uh, well, what the same two creatures, Godzilla and, and Mutos. Yeah. So, so that first trailer was cheeky. Yes, and all, but also, as I say, I think it set up the tone of the film different. Uh, it set itself up to be reviewed as a different film than it was. And I'm not surprised that people say things like this. Um, you know, if it was, if the trailers were more monster rompy type trailers, then <laughs> I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, this this does bug me. I mean, the fact that you can understand in a trailer they don't want to like reveal the key reveals of the film, but the fact that they make scenes specially for trailers or edits the trailer such that the trailer in itself is a movie and gives you a completely different storyline. Um, there's lots of examples I can think of. I mean, one that always comes to the front of my mind is the trailer for Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clunies, where it starts off, it's called Attack of the Clones, so you're meant to think that it's about clones attacking, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the film is actually about the fact that the clones are used as an army to defeat the evil separatist army which is composed of the droids 
But the the trailer starts with a character. Is that what it's about? I don't even remember. The plots are so confusing. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that is what it's about. Don't get me started on Star Wars. But it starts off with with a character, um, Lars. Uh, what's his name? Baru. Uh, no, no. Whatever. It starts off with someone saying, um, "They attacked the dawn. We had no warning." And then immediately goes into like you know Star Wars stuff. So you're supposed to think that's someone talking about an attack of the clones. No, that's a bit halfway through the film, which is about how Shmi Skywalker gets taken off by sand people. It's like some minor little thing in the story about how Anakin's got to go and save his mum from the sand people. It's nothing to do with the, the clones, but from the trailer, it's like, it's like, it's kind of like abusing the little yeah. sound bites they can put in the trailer. Yeah. And, um, and, and I kind of feel the same way about Godzilla. So, the the longer Godzilla trailers, there are bits when they just like flashes, like seconds of of Godzilla, like the bit where his tail flails over the top of the Chinese lanterns, and the bit where he like bellows in the direction of the the closing doors of the the shelter. It's like those bits weren't used in the same movie as they were as they were in the trailer. And in fact, the bit when we see Godzilla like bellowing and coming towards the closing doors of the shelter that bit isn't in the movie because in that bit when you do see the doors closing in the shelter that's when he's fighting the male muto so they obviously didn't want to reveal the mutos fully in the trailer so they made a special bit for the trailer to give you a completely different flavor it's false advertising in a way yeah false advertising i think it is and oh but often i find funny is that they'd be better off just making the the film that was the trailer right yeah, just fill in those scenes in between and you're done. <laughs> Often they end it's, up with the worst film. It's very interesting how trailers have changed over the years. Um, uh, well, you know, I said I watched the Alien quadrilogy. Well, obviously that's got all of the um, the original trailers from Alien and Aliens. And mm. uh, there's many other films. You know, not talking about films from a long time ago. Films from like the early 80s or the 70s or whatever. And it's like the trailer's just a million miles away from the way they do them now. But, um, well, I suppose the danger today is that people are, they want to stop people from changing channels at the touch of a button, that sort of stuff, don't they? So. Although, right. less of a concern. Right, we should wrap up because we've probably we gone for about two and a half hours now. Yeah, sorry, listeners. You don't have to listen. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think the biggest biggest problem we might have is that there's a um, size limit on the <laughs> on the audio file uploads. Oh yeah. On, uh, oh. yeah. Oh, that problem is does still happen because I was listening to episode 26 and it just like stopped and said audio stream cannot be accessed. So it's not just affecting the older ones. It said something though, did it? It, it always said audio does. stream can't be accessed. It always does. It's always done that. Yeah. It says audio Mine stream doesn't, doesn't say that to me. Okay. Stops playing. Okay, so Tetsukon, everything's still. So we hope you enjoyed our few words about Godzilla. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, but yeah, Tetsukon, come to Tetsukon, book your tickets, book your tickets now. Yeah. Where should they go online? Tetsu.com slash convention. And to listen to this podcast, they go to. Tetsu.com. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> um, hey, I'm on Twitter. I tweet at. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> that's that's from one of the crappy films. Yeah. 
not from the good ones like <laughs> the Empire Strikes Back. At sir, it's quite possible this asteroid is entirely stable. <laughs> at Tet Zoo, and there's a Tetrapodology Facebook page. Uh, shout out for our friends John Smell and Alberta Claw who do Tetsu Time. Ethan Kosak's brilliant Tetsu comic. He did a Godzilla one lately. He also did a Sea Monster Carcass one with um, Toilet Slice as well. I don't know if I mentioned mm. that. Really good. I'm going to put all of those in a slideshow and have them playing at TetsuCon in the background. Tetsuology book one. Buy it, buy it now. Uh, <laughs> John and myself and our friend Memo Kozman have produced several books, including the Cryptozoologicon Volume 1. One. Because one. normally I say Volume 2. I did last time. Oh, volume did you? Two is, okay. Yeah, still in progress. Because 1 and 2, they're different numbers, actually. Yeah. Um, we've done Not a book here. all yesterday's, which is about science and speculation in paleontology. Um, and all your yesterday's sort of crowdsourced thing. Um. Tetrapod Zoology is currently hosted at Scientific American, and uh, last night I put up a brief article about uh, early members of the pinniped lineage because I didn't have time to do anything else. I'm currently swamped with other projects. I don't know how the hell I'm going to ever find time to do anything. Uh, the Crocodilomorph article, that, that, that went nuts. Loads, of, loads and loads of hits. Okay, that's me done. Okay. Um, yeah, donate to the podcast, people. Um, recurring donations are great. That's just done through PayPal. Just a tiny amount is is much appreciated. Um, cash for questions. People should get in cash for questions. We didn't actually have any this week, so or this episode. So yeah, get them in. I mean, we wouldn't have answered them anyway because we were going to do a Godzilla special. Yeah. But yeah, screw us anyway. Yeah, but next next episode we will. So yeah, get get them in and um. I'm at johnconway.co, and you find links to my Twitters and my Fezbooks. Um, and I think that's it. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for everyone who commented on Facebook. But yeah. Yeah. No time. No time. Okay. Goodbye. Yeah, bye. bye.